Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit byteradio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest, returning guest, is Larry Flaxman, and we'll be talking about a book that he co-wrote with Marie Jones entitled The Afterlife, Heaven, Hell, and Life After Death. So what happens when we die? Many view it as a mystery, but there are tantalizing clues to be found in the Bible and other religious scriptures, scientific findings, historical writings, literature, reports of near-death experiences, and many other recorded sources. Facing the contradictions and similarities of beliefs from all over the world and throughout history, the afterlife book, Heaven, Hell, and Life After Death, shows how death and the afterlife is viewed in a variety of different ways. Larry Flexman is a best-selling author and researcher on a mission to inform, empower, and entertain anyone interested in the paranormal and, quote, fringe science. Larry has been involved in paranormal research and field investigation for more than two decades, with a focus on seeking to apply the scientific approach to unexplained events. With his experience in integrating quantum physics, particularly entanglement and the observer effect, to human consciousness via real-time EEG monitoring of the experiencer. Larry is revolutionizing the area of paranormal research. He is president and senior researcher of the Arkansas Paranormal and Anomalous Studies team, which is um, acronyms ARPAST, A-R-P-A-S-T, which has grown to be one of the most prestigious paranormal research groups in the country. For more information, you can visit Larry's website, which is www.larryflaxman.com. Now that, I'd like to welcome Larry to the show. Good day, Larry. Hey, Richard, how are you? Good, good, and um, just wanted to, you know, uh, say welcome back. Last time you were on my show it was um, 11 years ago, and uh, we just talked about your paranormal um, investigations. So it's it's a good talk again and uh, to read this book. Okay. So can you so can you tell tell us a little bit? You know, what got you interested? in becoming a paranormal um, investigator? <laughs> so that is a really interesting question. All right, so, Robert, i got to go all the way back on this one. Um, my mom had a very intense interest in really anything mysterious, um, fiction uh, generally, but my mom was an absolutely avid and voracious reader, and her... Her interest in fringe topics uh, really sort of rubbed off on me. Um, in fact, it, it would be a regular occurrence to grow up, uh, walk by their bed, my, my folks' bed, and see stacks of books. Um, my mom would love to get started on a book and then make it a couple chapters in and pick up another book and just sort of continue. <laughs> but her, her favorite genre uh, within, I guess, science, the science fiction um, space uh, really was paranormal stuff. So she was super interested in um, ghosts, uh, UFOs, uh, ancient Egypt theory, really all of the things that today um, I guess we sort of consider uh, fringe science. Back in the day, they were really more considered fiction. Um, but as we've sort of uh, expanded our scientific knowledge and awareness, some of those fictional ideas have have certainly uh, become nonfiction. So I think my interest really derived from, I guess, my early formative years. And, you know, I found um, as I've 
gotten older, um, my interest has shifted pretty significantly, actually, um, to one direction specifically of the paranormal, um, and, and that is the um, research and study of, of what happens after you die. So as I've gotten older and I've seen a variety of um, folks, friends, family, et cetera, pass away, um, I, I've, I have certainly been very cognizant and aware of my own mortality. And, you know, that's not something that, that most people really think about, especially growing up. You know, there's, that's just the farthest thing from people's minds is that one day you will be old and one day you will die. And as I've gotten older, um, I've certainly recognized that, uh, that, that, you know, I probably have less time left, uh, than I, than I certainly did. So my focus for the last 20 plus years, uh, really has been trying to kind of understand that, um, and, and sort of justify that to myself. Uh, so I, my, my focus within the paranormals is specifically that. I have been absolutely focused on trying to reconcile for myself uh, what happens after death. Um, so it, it's funny how, you know, people's interests kind of ebb and wane and, and sort of um, change course and direction. And I, I certainly believe that that has been the case with me. Now, I certainly still have an interest in other types of fringe science, um, but my primary focus, I, I would say, would be on the traditional paranormal research, which would be what most people refer to uh, most likely as, as ghosts. Yeah. So um, in the introduction, they indicated that you, you know, seek to apply the scientific approach. Um, you know, just uh, the, the, can you tell us in which ways, um, you know, that approach, you, you use that approach with things that, you know, sometimes, um, you know, defy science. So that's a, that's a really great question. So um, the difficulty, I would say, with, with paranormal research as a whole is that by its very definition, the paranormal is, is um, outside of the realm of current scientific understanding. So it, it's hard to apply it's hard to apply concepts or tenets of traditional science to something that, that you really have no uh, basis or background in understanding. So my approach really is to um, attempt to study uh, physical sciences in a, in a attempt uh, to sort of reconcile some of the things that um, folks would consider to be non-normal uh, or potentially paranormal. So the idea behind that really is is sort of twofold. So the application of traditional science, I think, falls um, extremely short in explaining uh, some of the experiences people, most of the experiences, I would say, that people have had. But if you look at some of the, the I guess, more outlier um, fringe science topics, such as quantum physics, quantum mechanics, string theory, there are a lot of, I guess, more fringe topics within some, some of that theoretical um, science space that helps to explain, in many ways, things that we do consider to be paranormal. So my application of, of science to the study of the paranormal is simply um, primarily a theoretics, right? So, again, since there are no experts in the paranormal field, and if you ever run across somebody that tells you that they're an expert uh, in the paranormal, run away screaming, uh, because there is no such thing. By Again, by its very definition, you can't be an expert in something that's unknown. Um, but by the application of theoretic, theoretical physics uh, in combination with uh, applied physical sciences, I think it gets us somewhat closer to understanding some of the unusual phenomena that occur. And if you delve um, at any length, uh, especially into uh, QM or uh, quantum mechanics, it, it's a world of weird. And there are a variety of things that are happening uh, below the, the macro or below the surface uh, that are invisible to our eyes that in many ways uh, are somewhat paranormal. Um, you know, so the application or, or my application of science is, is really sort of 
stretching the limits or pushing the limits of uh, traditional science and, and really trying to incorporate more of the theoretical uh, aspects of it into potentially explaining things. Yeah. yeah I, I know I've had a, a couple you know, guests on who, you know, talked about the quantum perspective. And, you know, it does um, provide a um, a structure or um, a way to um, visualize how what was previously, um, you know, known to happen but then unknown as to why, you know, it, it can incorporate, it can provide potential answers, you know, to, to those those questions. And, and it's kind of like finding the, um, that overall um, view, the overall theory, the overall design, you know, that allows for all of these types of experiences to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and things that we consider to be um, explained or debunked today or, you know, are things that, you know, 150, 200 years ago were considered to be fringe science topics or, or uh, potentially science fiction. You know, one of the things, and, and again, it's kind of a continuous organic process. Like, for instance, um, have, are you familiar with the, the concept of uh, quantum entanglement? Um, a bit. <laughs> I, would, I mean, I would, you know, just the idea of um, you know, one um, one particular, I guess, event kind of being able to be touched by another, you know, just, um, you know, kind of with, without any apparent um, connection. Right. So, so Einstein called, called that... Um, <laughs> Einstein called that spooky action at a distance, and he believed very strongly that it was something that was um, physically impossible. He didn't believe that there was any way that you could possibly uh, have FTL or faster than, than light travel. There's absolutely no way in, in um, Einstein's mind that two disparate uh, energy types, quanta, photons, whatever, could be separated by vast distances but still continue to uh, interact with each other and still continue to uh, to have some sort of a non-physical connection. Um, in the years since uh, Einstein's unified field theory, there has been a variety of studies that have actually proven that entanglement is real. So we know, we, we still can't explain why. We have no idea why the phenomena actually occurs, but quantum entanglement has been shown to be a, 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 legitimate, um, a, a legitimate thing. We, again, we, we have no idea why it exists, but I strongly believe that a, a large number of paranormal experiences uh, can be attributed to some type of, of quantum entanglement situation. In other words, whether the experiencer sees a, a misty figure walking down a step or they hear something or they smell something, perhaps that is us um, being quantumly entangled to another uh, individual, uh, regardless or boundless, not bound by uh, space, traditional space-time constructs. So, in other words, if the multiverse exists, and according to quantum theory, it absolutely does. In fact, there's potential for up to 31 different multiverses all existing within the same, essentially within the same uh, time-space continuum as us. But if you have all of these potential realities that exist alongside our own three-dimensional physical reality, what's to say that when you see that or when you have that paranormal experience, that you're not simply really interacting with something, potentially something sentient as you and I, but something that is in a different uh, dimensional plane. And the concept of quantum entanglement really comes into place because we know that we have a connection to each other. We know via common DNA connections, we know that people are connected. We know we have this quantum bond with individuals, both living and dead. So, you know, a great example of that is if you're driving to work or driving to school, um, you're not paying any attention really to your surroundings, and all of a sudden a song pops into your head as you're driving along, and then 
next thing you know, that song is playing on the radio. You have no no explanation for why. You just have that pop into your head, and then boom, it starts playing. Another good example that that sort of shows that that nonverbal quantum connection between humans. Have you ever walked into a space or or met someone for the very first time without actually having any verbal communication with that individual? In other words, you're in the same space with a person, and the person hasn't even opened their mouth, hasn't said a word to you, but you instantly know whether you like that person or not. There is some sort of nonverbal communication that's occurring. There is some sort of entanglement you know, and we could go all the way down the rabbit hole of potentially tapping in the entanglement to past life experiences, perhaps the person that you just ran across that you met that you simply don't like but you can't explain why is simply tied to this um, idea of being entangled to that person's soul from another reality or another time. So I think a large portion of uh, experiential events that people um, report could could possibly uh, be as a result of uh, quantum entanglement. So, do you think that the um, the dimensions are um, is the barrier between dimensions? Do you feel that it's one of those things? Is it kind of fluid then, in, in the sense that it can be? Um, you know, the, the experiences can kind of come together, you know, into this particular dimension? So, talking my language now, um, I don't know the answer to that. And, and here, here's why. Okay. I have, I mm-hmm. have um, focused my, my research on trying to understand what that mechanism is. Why is it? that sometimes you will have events, sometimes you won't. I'll go to a paranormal investigation, for instance. I'll be in a room with a group of people, and someone in the in the group invariably will have some type of an experience, and I'm sitting there three feet away, absolutely oblivious to it. Or you could be in the, um, the same space as, as an individual, and, you know, you might smell something, and, you know, the smell of tobacco uh, or, um, you know, so- something that triggers you and the individual that's right next to you doesn't have the ability to, doesn't smell that, doesn't have that, that same, um, that same sense. So I don't, I don't know what the mechanism is that allows that uh, thinning of the veil, if you will. Um, it, you know, it seems like that there is potentially uh, some type of an electromagnetic um, connection there, but I, I can't tell you how to trigger it. That's that's. I, I think to me that's what's most frustrating is the randomness, or the, I should say the seeming randomness of some of these events. You know, despite how um, how much of a believer you are or how much of a disbeliever you are, I, I don't think that that really has a whole lot to do with it. Some people are like, well, you have to be open to the experience, and yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, if you are you know, psychologically closed off to the idea or the potential of something happening, yeah, you're probably not going to have anything happen. But if you're open and you're willing to to sort of uh, allow external stimuli in, there's a good chance that you'll experience something. But I don't know what it is that, that allows one person um, to have that experience and another uh, to not. So as part of that, as part of, and part of my research um, is that I've, for the last um, almost – a little over a decade now, almost a decade and a half, I've been doing uh, EEG studies of individuals uh, during different types of experiences. Um, And so one of the things that I wanted to focus on initially in my research was, is there something potentially in brain chemistry that allows for uh, these different experiential events? So I started my my focus on that with uh, a group of, of individuals like healers, psychics, folks that were able to go into deep trans, uh, transcendental states, folks that were able to connect uh, to the other side. Because I wanted to see if there was a common denominator, if there was something potentially uh, brainwave, uh, either chemical or pattern, that potentially would be the, the, the um, smoking gun. But my thought at first, and this is, I, I think, you know, somewhat uh, – 
somewhat selfish, but I'm, I'm being honest. You know, I consider myself to be about as psychic as a rock, and I wanted to understand how psychics have the the abilities that they have. So I figured that if I could identify a specific brainwave pattern or a specific uh, chemical reaction that's occurring in the brain while these folks are, are uh, doing their um, readings or, or, you know, going into to, um, trance or meditative states, then I could potentially replicate that either using binaural beats, isochronic tones. There's a variety of different methods that could be used. But my, my first idea um, was to, to try to replicate that, essentially allow a non-psychic individual uh, to have those abilities or to potentially have those abilities, I should say. And during that research, I did identify some very significant markers uh, in those folks that had some of those, quote, special abilities versus folks like me. So where does that sort of bring us to? Well, again, I don't know. Um, so I see, I can see part of the equation, but I can't see all of it. So it's hard to answer the question without that missing piece. And that's what I've been sort of focused on is trying to understand the missing piece. And that missing piece, I think, is us. I don't know exactly to what extent is what the, the question still remains. Is it completely, um, is it a completely internalized process? Is there any type of external influence? That's what I'm having the, the most difficulty with trying to understand is, you know, how much of that is um, sort of on autopilot and how much of that is, is controllable and, and potentially, again, able to be reproduced. Yeah, because, I mean, that is the, the ability to, you know, replicate, you know, a particular um, kind of uh, activity or, you know, is, is kind of key to, to being able to, um, you know, to be able to say this is, this is what's happening. And, and, you know, and I think, you know, the idea of uh, just the very subjective nature of, of the um, kinds of activities, you know, it, it does um, – create that extra challenge, you know, recognizing that right. it's a particular individual. So I can see where that, that would be the case. And I said that you um, were able to determine that there were some kind of markers. What what what, can, what would that be? Was it chemical? So, brain so chemistry? Um, no, so it's actually brainwaves. So there are very specific things that yeah. happen. We'll talk about psychics, for instance. They've probably been the the um, biggest focus of my studies because there's more psychics than y you could imagine. I mean, everyone in their brother thinks they're <laughs> psychics nowadays. But um, <laughs> what I saw when I was doing these studies um, was a very significant shift in brainwave patterns. And let me back up and, and sort of ask a question here. Do you remember back in the, the early days of the Internet, back when we had America Online and CompuServe and Prodigy, where you would use your dial-up modem? And you would dial the yeah. phone number. You would you would uh, hear that horrible screeching tone, <laughs> which you knew at that yeah. time was uh, the other computer telling you that it was connecting. And then there was there was a pause, right? There was this this length mm -hmm. of time where that connection was was the handshaking was occurring and that connection was was happening before you started to receive data, right? So I see right. the exact same thing happening during psychics. Uh, during the EEG studies that I've done with psychics. So uh, when the psychic first sits down, uh, they're in essentially theta state, state, status, which mm -hmm. is normal brainwave waking state, right? Then when you started asking questions and the different psychics, and um, throughout my studies I've had standardized questions that I ask every one of the, the psychics just to sort of mm -hmm. reduce any any variables and, and potential for uh, a potential for, for abuse, right? So I start asking questions, and invariably, every one of the psychics will close their eyes. They will um, start to go into a deep state. And so immediately, we start seeing a shift from theta to delta. Delta is long, slow brainwave patterns. But then, like the America Online connection, that, that brainwave pattern all of a sudden spikes. It goes to beta very high, and then uh, to gamma, and then back down. So what's happening during that period is 
the psychic, this is my, my opinion of what's happening, the psychic is, is retrieving information from elsewhere, which is beta, and then they're bringing it back, which is it's going to gamma, and then they go back to theta. What I think is happening is there's some sort of a handshake procedure or process that's going on. Mm. And I can't tell you where they're reaching out to. I have no idea. You know, you could look at folks like Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet, who, you know, allegedly had the ability to communicate uh, very similarly, where he, he would uh, reach out to the Akashic, what he called the Akashic record, and he would be able to retrieve information such as medical information, um, you know, all types of, of, of different uh, readings. And in fact, uh, if you ever visit his library, he has thousands and thousands of, of documented readings um, of things, that, information that he's brought back. So when the psychics are doing this, um, they are connecting someplace or someone. I, I don't know. That's one of the missing pieces. But something is happening during that process where the psychic's brain is going elsewhere to retrieve that information. The information is, again, coming from I have no idea where, and it's coming back. Now, you know, you could say, well, there's so many psychics that are, that are bogus, and you're absolutely right. And what I mm -hmm. saw uh, was a marked shift in, the, in the, um, the, the folks that provided BS information. And you know how I know it was BS information? Because the questions that I wrote were very specifically tailored questions about my parents. Questions that mm -hmm. only I would know the information or, or the answer to that nobody else should know the answer to. Things about my, my upbringing, uh, personal things that have never been shared with anyone. So I was very easily and quickly able to determine uh, what I would consider to be the, quote, legitimate psychics from the, the, the not-so-much-legitimate psychics. Um, so... Mm -hmm. That brainwave pattern is, or that brainwave, that series of brainwave patterns is a reproducible thing. It's something that I've seen time and time again in my studies with, with legitimate psychics. Now, again, where does that sort of lead us? Well, I'm not sure, but it's another piece of the puzzle. It, it tells me that we are an integral part of that equation. It also tells me that there is some form or fashion of quantum entanglement that is occurring. Now, I have no idea what the what's happening on the other end of the entanglement uh, equation. I don't know if it's an individual or if it's, as Edgar Casey says, this Akashic record, hall of record, or Akashic record, hall of records type thing. I don't know the answer to that. But there is very certainly something that is occurring uh, that allows those folks to have those experiences. And I, I believe very strongly that when a person has a paranormal experience, a, a legitimate paranormal experience, not, mm -hmm. you know, not someone, you know, dropping their cell phone in an investigation or, you know, so a, legitimate, a legitimate unexplainable right. experience, that there is some type of uh, entanglement that's occurring as well. The problem with studying those types of individuals or those types of experiences are they're so random. There is no way to mm -hmm. control I have not, I'll put it this way, I have not figured out a way to do that in a controlled environment like I have been able to do with the psychics and healers. Those are controlled environments where I'm able to strictly control, mm -hmm. uh, you know, access into the facility, the questions that are asked, the temperature in the room, the hydration levels of the individual, all of the, you know, all of these different variables I have control over. When I go into a, a reportedly haunted location, where a person has experienced something paranormal, you know, all bets are off the table. There's no way to control that environment. There's no way to, you know, physically control any of the variables. So I can't really apply that same study methodology, but it's something that I'm working toward trying to find an answer uh, to. Um, I actually have a couple of, of potential uh, long-term research locations, uh, the Crescent Hotel being one of them, uh, that I might have the ability to potentially uh, try to do some of the same brainwave studies uh, in those locations and have control over the situation and, and the environment, unlike the typical uh, paranormal investigation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there you were already halfway through the show, so I want to take just a quick. Oh break. wow! And then when we, I know it's just flowing by fast. So when we come back, you know, since you mentioned the Crescent Hotel. 
Um, you know, in your book, you do also say that, you know, um, your psychic ability is that, is that of a rock. You're in, in when you were talking about uh, the Crescent uh, Hotel story. So um, I want you, to, if you wouldn't mind, sharing that because that is, in your book, you have um, personal stories that people have, um, we do. you know, yeah, personal experiences. So um, I want, when we come back, I want you to go ahead and share what yours was um, in that particular section, okay? Sounds good, Robert. Okay, great. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Larry Flaxman, and we're talking about a book that he co-authored with Marie Jones called The Afterlife Book, Heaven, Hell, and Life After Death. And again, you can find out more about Larry and his work by visiting his website, which is www.larryflaxman.com. Okay, with that, we're back, Larry. Sounds good. Yeah, I cannot okay. believe how fast this show is going. My gosh, we're gonna have to like, we're gonna have to do another one. <laughs> I know. Part two. Part two. Uh, right. So you know, you you, know, you mentioned it before the break. You mentioned the Crescent Hotel is possibly one of those areas that you might be able to um, structure some more, you know, uh, some studies. Um, but right. again, as I mentioned, you know, in your book, you've got like 50 pages devoted to. Um, personal um, experiences of, of death in the afterlife, and in it you contain one about yours, um, your paranormal experience. So would you share that with the listeners? Because I think it was a very interesting story. Well, I've, I've had a lot at the Crescent. Um, I don't remember exactly which one I put in the book. Uh, was it was it the one about the morgue? No, yeah, I think that was it. Was the one with the scratches on your back? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is the morgue. Yeah. Well, and the reason I say that is, so I am the Crescent Hotel's resident paranormal investigator, and um, I'm not sure what that really means because I'm really not a resident <laughs> to Eureka Springs, yeah. but they consider me their official uh, paranormal investigator. So the Crescent Hotel is sort of my home away from home. Um, literally, I, I probably spend almost as much time there as I do at my my home. Maybe not exactly, but um, it's about four mm-hmm. hours for me. Um, so I spend a pretty significant amount of time there. Um, so the Crescent Hotel is an absolutely, absolutely haunted location. And, and I don't say that lightly because I, I am a huge skeptic. Um, but I have had some of the most unbelievable experiences happen at the Crescent Hotel. And, I, and I've been literally all over the place. If you, if you could name a paranormal location or a, a known paranormal location in the United States, I've probably been to it. And the Crescent Hotel, by far, in my opinion, uh, absolutely trumps pretty much every place that I've ever been. So I'll tell you this, uh, one of these stories, and uh, there are many stories, because, again, I've been going to the hotel for almost, gosh, probably about 20 years now. 
Um, so right. there are there are many stories, personal experiences that I had at the at the Crescent, but probably one of the most dramatic experiences I'd say, or the most um, yeah, for sure, the most dramatic uh, was a few years ago. Um, so um, I am the host of an event at the Crescent Hotel that we do every year called uh, ESP, or the Eureka Springs Paranormal Weekend. And it's in uh, January and February, and it's, uh, it's a two-weekend event that uh, is generally pretty booked, and um, tickets sell out uh, almost a year in advance. It's so popular. But this particular event, ESP, is an event where uh, folks come to investigate the hotel. Uh, they get to hang out with me and some of the other um, speakers that, that come. Uh, they get to listen to some great talks. They get uh, unadulterated access to all of the cool uh, places in the hotel that are allegedly haunted. So a couple of years ago, during one of these ESP weekends, I was leading a tour, uh, and the first location that I went down to was the morgue. So the Crescent Hotel, for those that don't know, has been a variety of things over the years. It's not always been a hotel. Uh, in fact, it has a very dark past. Uh, it served as a as a um, as a youth conservatory. It served as a women's college. It's been another hotel, and probably most famously, it was something called the Baker Cancer Hospital in the 1930s. Norman Baker uh, was a uh, some say crackpot, uh, others say brilliant individual that schemed his way uh, to fame and fortune. Um, by selling uh, a fake cancer cure. Um, so Norman Baker um, bought the Crescent Hotel, what was the Crescent Hotel at the time, uh, bought the hotel and converted it into the Baker Cancer Hospital. And he would uh, advertise, he also owned a series of radio stations, so some of the most powerful radio stations in the country. So he would advertise across the, the nation to come to Arkansas and be healed of cancer. His uh, his treatment consisted of um, a, a horrific uh, concoction of uh, watermelon seed, ground, uh, ground up watermelon seeds, carbolic acid, uh, natural spring water from Eureka Springs, and something else. I can't remember what the other ingredient was, but um, he was really big on. Uh, he claimed he could cure cancer non-surgically. He would take this this um, invention. Uh, this liquid, uh, liquid death, essentially, uh, and inject it into uh, localized tumor sites on the individuals. So there was a significant number of people that uh, passed away um, cancer hospital, not only from cancer, uh, but from his horrific treatments as well. Um, th there's, it's a fascinating story. Um, it, you know, it, it, it certainly talks through uh, some of the most um, – some of the lowest times, I would say, for sure. But mm -hmm. so anyway, Norman Baker was a very eccentric individual. And so I, a couple of years ago, was doing uh, leading an investigation down to the morgue. And the morgue, at the time that the Baker Hospital uh, was in operation, was alleged to be an actual morgue, a working morgue. In fact, there's even still a, a refrigerator uh, that was allegedly used to store bodies in. So we're down in the basement um, with the morgue. Uh, there was probably about 30 people uh, on my um, group that, that evening. And I had just come off of, of doing a show called Ghost Lab. Um, it was a, a show on uh, the Travel Channel called Ghost Lab. And the two brothers, Brad and Barry, um, were very big into provoking, uh, provoking spirits. And, you know, I never had seen that used before. Um, and this was at the Alcatraz Island episode. Um, I'd never seen that used before. Um, but it was it was very uh, successful at Alcatraz. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to try it here at the um, Crescent Hotel, Baker Cancer Hospital. And in the morgue, uh, there is a drain um, that is in the middle of the floor. And I've always sort of had questions as to whether it truly was a morgue or not. Uh, the layout of the room, mm -hmm. to me, really represent what a morgue um, – would have, like a working morgue, but suffice it to say, there's a drain in the middle of the room, and my thought was, if I could dig this drain out, potentially I might find uh, human tissue remains, uh, bone fragments, for instance, especially if it was truly being used as a morgue. 
So mm-hmm. I remove the cover of the uh, the drain, and I'm speaking to Mr. Baker, and I'm I'm increasingly uh, becoming uh, more and more irreverent toward him, uh, and making some some really offhanded comments, and really trying to provoke him. You know, I'm telling him, hey, I'm I'm digging out your morgue. I'm gonna I'm going to expose you that this wasn't a legitimate, uh, you didn't have a legitimate cure and that, mm-hmm. you know, these, so it was, it was going on. Uh, in fact, at one point, I think I might even made a reference to something about his mother, but um, all of a sudden <laughs> um, I felt this incredibly hot searing pain uh, radiating down my back, starting essentially at, at neck level and going to right above my, my uh, buttocks. And it it burned like nothing I could ever I, – I, the closest thing that I, I could imagine would be that if I ever got branded with like a, a hot poker, it literally felt like, like that, like something was like raking a hot coal, coal down my back, absolutely debilitating. I completely freaked out, and I had to stop the investigation because I, I, I was in a significant amount of pain. And I didn't know what, what, what was going on. I mean, was this, was I having some sort of like, was this a heart attack? I, I didn't know what, what it was. So I went back up to the room. I stripped my shirt off and in the mirror, it was very clear that there were fingerprints, marks, finger marks going down my back. There were three distinct marks that, that went from, from the top all the way down, like someone had taken three fingers and dug in as hard as they possibly could and just drug it down my skin. I have absolutely no explanation for that other than I obviously pissed off Norman Baker and he was showing me, you know, who, who is, um, who is in control at that location. So ever since that location, I have tried to make amends with him. Um, every time I go back, I'll, I'll, you know, tell him how sorry I am for that particular instance, and, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try to say, you know, every time, literally, I'll try to, to make amends mm-hmm. with him, but invariably, it doesn't work. I'll get an EDP. In fact, I've got some on my YouTube channel now uh, where he, he's very, um, apparently, he's still very upset with me for the comments that I've made. The last, um, one of the videos that's on my YouTube channel now the last time that I was at the Crescent, I was sitting at his desk, and again, I had said on video, I, I apologize, you know, I, I, I hope that we can get past that incident, you know, talking to him like he's, like, literally like he's sitting there with me, trying to have a conversation, mm-hmm. and apologizing man, man to man, and very clearly on the audio, I was doing an EVP session, very clearly on the audio, he calls me a Jew. Which I am Jewish, mm. but I mean that is an absolute. Uh, I mean that that is. It, it was used as a racial slur. He wasn't saying that mm-hmm. as a term of endearment. Um, and some of the other words that were said, you could tell by the tone, uh, the inflection of the voice, that he obviously still harbors some some serious anger toward me uh, for whatever reason. So. It, interestingly enough, it doesn't seem to affect anyone else. So obviously, I made a big enough impact on him, or perhaps because I'm such a, a, a fixture at the hotel and I'm seen there so often, you know, I'm sort of top of mind with him. I don't know, but I have not heard of anyone else having that, uh, having a similar experience to that, as far as being um, uh, scraped like that. But that was, you know, when something happens like that, and I could count on one hand the number of times that. You know, something has truly scared me in the paranormal. It doesn't happen often. I am honestly more terrified of the two-legged living uh, spirit than, <laughs> than I am the go- of, of ghosts. But I've had a couple of things happen throughout my, my career in the paranormal that, you know, have sort of shaken me a little bit, but nothing like that. I mean, that absolutely, absolutely um, floored me. And if it had been anyone else, honestly, I probably would have – I probably would not have believed it. I mean, it, it was that significant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so having personal experiences like that, I think, are a really good thing, especially for folks that are sort of on the fence. You know, I, I joke all the time about, you know, people consider me the skeptic, but it really is true. I, I approach everything not so much as a skeptic, but as an objective individual. I, I approach right. every situation with an open mind, 
But, I, you know, I'm also in the back of my mind trying to think of a rational explanation, a scientific explanation for something, whether it be environmental, whether it be physiological, what have you. I'm, I'm looking for potential explanations. But this particular event, I have absolutely no uh, rational scientific explanation for it. I mean, it was it was very clearly finger marks going down my back, and the feeling is like nothing I've ever felt before. Yeah, yeah. So you wouldn't suggest using that provocation method for no, no, for, I really wouldn't. And I mean, really, if you think uh-huh. about it, too. I mean, it was stupid. I shouldn't have done it. I should not have modeled uh, after that. It was really poor judgment on my part. You know, if spirits, if spirits are truly the disembodied, uh, are truly disembodied humans, these these are potentially mm-hmm. people that were just as alive or are still just as alive as you and I, living in a, in the multiverse somewhere. You know, if you talk to somebody disrespectfully. I mean, you, you kind of have to expect that. And I, I was just caught up in the moment. I, I really – I don't do that. I'm a very respectful person, whether I know the person or not, whether it's a living or dead person. I try to, you know, treat people – do you know, do unto others. I try mm-hmm. to follow that. I try to be as respectful as I can to everyone. And, you know, I got tied up in the, in the moment and, you know, had a short lapse of judgment and haven't done it since. But apparently, Mr. Uh, Mr. Baker is not very apologetic about that. Uh, not a very forgiving spirit. You know, no, so, but, no, not uh, at all. Yeah, especially when you know, there, if there's no sense of time on on their part, uh, you know, they could be, be very fresh in their mind every time you appear. Um, so the the book, the afterlife book. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yep. Your book with uh, Marie Jones. Sure. Um, it is wide-reaching in its topics. Um, it is. So how, how did, did did you – well, first of all, how did the collaboration with Marie come about? That, that's a, a whole story unto itself. Um, so this is actually my tenth book with Marie. We've written ten books together. It's hard to, it's hard to imagine. I mean, she's, wow. she's, she's amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, so – how I met her was an interesting story. So um, years and years and years ago, uh, I read her first book called Science, P-S-I-E-N-C-E, and that book made a huge impact on me. It was really one of the very first books that, that I've seen uh, that applied science or attempted to apply science to paranormal phenomena. Most books at the time, especially, uh, were really, you know, more geared toward the woo-woo type stuff, you know, paranormal straight up, not really trying to explain anything uh, scientifically. But her book took a completely different angle in that she was attempting to explain uh, different paranormal phenomena using science. And that resonated with me. In fact, I, I it resonated with me so strongly that not only did I make it a required reading uh, for my paranormal team, but I also reached out to Marie to tell her how awesome the book was and to make a slight correction. She, I never let her live this down, and she thinks it's hilarious. Uh, but there was a, a uh, there was a, a slight uh, correction that had to be made in, in one of the um, uh, one of the paragraphs that she had written about quantum physics or quantum mechanics. I can't remember exactly what it was, but um, so I wasn't. You know, I was just reaching out to her to tell her how awesome the book was. And, oh, by the way, here's, you know, you might want to check this. And then next thing I knew, we started talking uh, more and more. Um, we would email back and forth different ideas about stuff. And, um, you know, I had never even thought about writing a book. That was, like, the farthest thing from my mind. And then we would, after after months of bouncing ideas back and forth, she finally said, hey, do you want to write a book together? And I was like, yes, yes, I do. So our first book uh, actually was supposed to be about the psychology of the paranormal. So we had done all the research. We had uh, written up a pitch for for her publisher about it. And it was something that that really was, it was, you know, it certainly lines with my area of expertise. uh, And it sort of ties in a whole bunch of other things. The psychology of the paranormal is just an awesome topic. 
Well, our publisher read our proposal and said, you know, guys, that's a great idea, but how about if you write something about 11-11? And Marie and I are both like, mm-hmm. huh? I think she had actually heard of the 11-11 phenomenon, but I certainly didn't. So I had to do some research, and, you know, I thought that it was – I thought it was BS, honestly. I thought, you know, it's mm-hmm. just sort of – just kind of a, you know, kind of a, a woo-woo topic that, that people um, – you know, have found to kind of believe in. But, you know, as we started doing the research for the book and um, stories, uh, we solicited stories from people, uh, I started to realize that, no, there's definitely something to it. In fact, not only did we realize that, but I personally started experiencing um, stuff during that time. So it's almost like, you know, you don't become aware of something until you – become aware of something, right? So as I'm writing that mm-hmm. book, I'm starting to have some of those similar experiences with with um, uh, with uh, repetitive numbers. So that's how our partnership started, and then it sort of went from there. We've written, as I said, 10 books together. We've had a bunch of different collaborations uh, with um, other uh, books that we've written pieces for, but we've written 10 books uh, together that are all somewhat – tangentially at least, related to paranormal stuff. Uh, there is some sort of a connection uh, to at least fringe, maybe not paranormal, but I, I guess mm-hmm. fringe is really more of a correct topic or correct word. Great. Yeah. Now, um, in the book you have, um, in the beginning, you talk about what happens when we die, um, even mm-hmm. an interesting factoid about the death rattle. So, and then you know, kind of what happens after, you know, to the, the corpse after a period of time. Um, I I got through that, <laughs> but I kind of had to force myself getting through that because that was like, I don't know, I guess it kind of hit at a, I wouldn't say too real, but, I mean, it was that. It's graphic. Um, yeah, graphic, that's the word. Yeah, it was yeah, graphic. Yeah, it's graphic, for so, sure. I mean, the reality yeah. of death is not pretty. I mean, really, from a physical yeah. perspective, it's really not. I mean, if you study any of, you know, the things that happen, I mean, it, it is not a pretty experience. Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't. So, like I said, I got through it. <laughs> I pushed through yeah. it like a trooper. But um, but it was, you know, it, it was interesting because I think then it set the tone kind of for kind of what followed later in the book. Um, now, right. In the book, you also talk about um, death and dying around the world, the different yeah. practices, um, and also in different time periods, what death practices were. Um, what would you? Is there any one particular um, kind of ritual or something that that stands out that is kind of so very unique in kind of a, a different experience than, let's say, what we have? You know, here, modern time, USA. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a variety of those, but I, I would say probably the, the most uh, contrast would be with the um, Egyptians, how they would bury their dead, and uh, essentially their belief in the afterlife. They, it, it was a hugely ceremonial deal when, a, when a, especially a king or, or, you know, some type of a upper status individual passed away. Uh, you know, some of the uh, some of the rituals and, and the body cleansing, removing of the organs, uh, storing those organs in, in uh, canopic jars, and you know some of the uh, ushantis that are placed in the uh, in the graves to help uh, guide those into, to protect the, the uh, body and to help guide those um, souls into the afterlife. There, there's so much symbology in it. It's just so interesting and unique about how Egyptians or, or it's so interesting and unique, the um, focus that Egyptians placed on death and how they believed that mm-hmm. death was essentially a, a portal or a doorway to another existence. That it, it wasn't, you know, physical death is one thing, but then the, the soul lives on. And it's interesting to me that that sort of has, Dia has certainly carried on in many religions and belief systems, but the um, the practical application, the funerary processes, and, and some of the um, ceremonial um, things are, are certainly uh, highly contrasted to today where, you know, we have 
obviously we, we have greatly different uh, beliefs and, and greatly different ceremonies. You know, there's, there's, there's a trend today, actually, uh, for folks to not even have any type of ceremony. They want to just be cremated or they, and, you know, or they want their ashes shot into space or whatever. So the physical body today doesn't have, play as much, doesn't seem to play as much, uh, it doesn't seem to have as much importance as it did to the ancient Egyptians. But yeah, there's, there's, beyond the Egyptians, there is a huge amount of contrast between funerary procedures today and, and within other cultures too. It's, it's a really fascinating topic. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and, and in your book, you had several things you wouldn't want to do at home, <laughs> different practices, but we'll leave those to the, the reader right. to kind of look at, you know. Um, right. and, and just since we're getting down toward the end of the show, um, you know, the, the subtitle of the book, Heaven, Hell, and Life After Death, um, and you talk about one of the topics is Heaven, Hell, and the in-between. So right. is there, in your opinion, Heaven and Hell and in-between? So, you know, you have to take those those terms um, and, and sort of think of them uh, as kind of analogies, at least in my opinion. So, you mm-hmm. know, there's there's a religious aspect intertwined uh, to obviously to that idea of heaven and hell and and the in between, if you will. But if you take religion completely out of the picture, and I know that's difficult because it is such an integral part of most people's upbringing and most people's belief system. Mm-hmm. But if you strip religion completely out of the equation and you look at, at science and you look at, you know, just common sense, I don't know that I believe, um, based on the knowledge that I have, that there are different locations like what we term mm-hmm. heaven and hell. So, you know, on my YouTube channel, for instance, I have a very strong focus on spirit communication. That's thing that I've had a fascination in, um, and that's, that is the primary focus of, of much of my research. And interestingly enough, I've asked during some of the EVP sessions that I conduct, where are you? And I've never gotten a straight answer, um, you know, a spirit <laughs> say, I'm in heaven or I'm in hell. But the fact that, I'm, that I get answers and that, you know, folks are able to communicate makes me think that there really isn't that, you know, disassociative uh, types of locations. You know, I think, again, going back to, the, to my um, application of quantum physics and, and um, science to the equation here, um, I think that what we're calling heaven and hell are simply levels mm-hmm. of the metaverse or the, the multiverse. So right. the grid, Marie and I wrote a book called The Grid. Um, so I strongly believe that those tenets, again, stripping the religion out of this completely and thinking of these not as disparate geographic locations, but maybe different times, perhaps. I think that those things that we're referring to are different sectors or yeah. places within the grid or, or the, the multiverse. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can understand that. Well, gosh, we have run out of time, Larry. <laughs> the, the hour has flown. I can't believe that. Wow. It has. Uh, it sure has. Now, I've, I've become one of the almost 28,000 subscribers on your YouTube channel, so I really oh, well, thank forward you. I to that. Ex- exploring that more and, and seeing your new um, uh, posts when they come out. So, well, I want to thank you for your time today, and I really appreciate you talking. Absolutely. We, have to, we definitely have to schedule another, a part two or something. I feel like we could probably talk for another three hours. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. I think we should do that. I think we should do that. So we'll, we'll, we'll get together, you know, offline and, and see what we can make happen. Yep, that sounds good. I appreciate it, Robert. Thank you so much. You're, you're very welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Larry Flaxman. We've been talking about the newest book, uh, tenth book, uh, that he has written called, with, co-written with Marie Jones, called The Afterlife Book, Heaven, Hell, and Life After Death. And again, you can find out more uh, about Larry by visiting his website, which is www.larryflaxman.com. And also go ahead and join me uh, and subscribe to his YouTube channel, which is 
type in Eric Flaxman and he'll pop right up on top and subscribe. So everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.